Let's take it to the edge. Let's get deflected. Let's talk about the night perspective. Let's get sharp. Let's get a little real. Hey guys, I'm Dan Eastland with Dogwood Custom Knives, and I'm here with Kyle Daly of KH Daily Knives, and this is the Knife Perspective, number 083. The Amazon, no, the real Amazon, no, not the store, the Amazon Amazon. No, I know it's not a store, it's mail order. Look, dude, it's the Amazon Amazon, jungle, monkeys, rivers, badassery, that was us. You know what, that's the... Hey, Kyle, how are you doing tonight, man? <laughs> I'm doing pretty good. Just uh, sent off a big order to Knife Center, and uh, I'm pretty happy with it and everything. All the knives turned out super cool. The file work on my Bushcrafters being a little bit thicker steel, the thorn pattern just helps that stand off a little bit better and was super cool. The Westinghouse canvas had like a really cool dual tone to it where the top was really dark and the, the bottom was lighter. And... uh just a whole bunch of cool things in that batch. Uh, that two-tone effect, is that age or just the materials they used that week? Or where does that come from? A little bit of both. So a lot of it is the age with the UV curing. But um, sometimes you'll get like a lot dark lines and stuff in there that whenever the, the layers were manufactured could have got a little bit of oil or the fibers could have been a little bit different and reacted with the resin differently. So sometimes you'll see like lines and stuff that do funny things through there um, i guess that's the kind of cool thing about uh being vintage or antique is it really is unique like a fingerprint mm-hmm. yeah and even as you go down the block it changes so um it's not it's not always consistent from piece to piece uh, that makes layout much easier, I bet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've learned to mark lines and stuff on anything that's big so that I can help try to keep a book match. Because my first run of it, I was like, oh, it's all just kind of like darkish. There was definitely like a, a lighter part on the bottom. So I was like having to do more like finish sanding and kind of give it a light buff so I could tell what orientation it was to flip it around uh... and try to match it up. And yeah, it was a huge pain, but. This time I was much smarter. Yeah, that was a lot of unbillable hours. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, 33 knives. There's 21 pocket bushcrafters and Spin did a really awesome job making the, the sheaths and he custom color coordinated some of the stitching to go with the kind of match the handles, which was really cool. Oh, cool. So the pocket bushcrafters that have like a green liner or green, green paper micarta have green stitching and the red. Firehose Micarta has uh, red stitching and stuff, so looks really cool. So go check them out now because they lasted, what, three days last time? Five days was the, the last batch of 36 of the Pocket Bush Crafters. They sold 13 in the first, like, 10 hours or something that the video got posted. So it was pretty crazy. Too big money. Yeah, hopefully we'll do another big run. I told... I told our contact there that uh, I want to try to do like orders of six. <laughs> so, 
coward. Yeah, I just keep keep spinning. Uh, like I my OCD is too much, and I keep futzing trying to make them all match perfectly and everything. So, yeah, that uh, it took me a long time to learn, and it's it's conflicting because on one hand, if you can do better, good is not enough. But from the professional side, the money making side, you got to learn when to quit messing yeah. with it. That the two percent improvement you're doing is not worth the twenty percent cost. You well, just and I was pretty much hating life when I was doing the last like twelve handles, hand sanding the handles. <laughs> so, um, LT Wright gave me really great advice, and it is played out even. Where they do, where they're doing hundred, five hundred piece batches, they break all of their batches down to five knives. So they do five knives and then five knives and five knives, rather than trying to do, say, twelve mm-hmm. knives all at once, because that's three to, three or four days of of brutal grinding that just sucks, and then it's three or four days of handles, and it's for me that would get boring. But rather than trying to do one batch of 12, doing two batches of six, for some reason, five is the magic number. But, you know, work it out for your batches the way you do. But somehow the sense of accomplishment, the do this batch, do the next batch, keeps it from becoming as monotonous for me. Yeah, I might have to look into that. I like doing it in pairs because I, I like to stack two, especially on my the thinner 330 seconds blades, I like to put two blades per package. Makes it a little a little bit mm-hmm. easier for wrapping and processing. Yeah, yeah try try batches of six then. Um, and I've I've gotten to the point now that I've got little trays that will hold mm-hmm. five knives. You could do six. Um, and as I'm working, you know, the blade goes in each slot and then the handle material goes in each slot, then the pin material. And it helps me keep everything organized as well as, the, like I said, there's just something about working in the smaller batches all the way to completion that makes my life easier. Yeah. And as we know, it's all about you, baby. <laughs> You know, I'm ready for the rest of the world to figure that out. <laughs> How have you been doing? Uh, I've been doing good, man. Um, All fresh fresh and relaxed? I, you know, I am. Um, on one hand, I'm buried in back orders. I'm finally healthy. I'm back in the shop. My grinds are back. I'm working. So on one hand, I should be buried and stressed out. But this has probably been one of, if not the best jungle trips I've had. Um, you know, it, it, I, I set it up. I was really lucky. I wound up with a, about a 12 foot dugout that was my own. I didn't have to share. So it was there, you know, five o'clock in the morning when I was ready to go fishing. And we had a lake near where we were. And, man, there was something about just the still quiet being on that lake um, that it, it freed me on one hand, it freed me a little bit of the stress. There was stuff that I knew it was going on, but there was nothing I could do about it. And it gave me a chance to do a lot of thinking and 
I didn't come up with a lot of new ideas, but everything just kind of it fit into place while I was out there. And I've brought that back to me. And the few days that I've been back in the shop, my productivity is up. I, I'm just in a better place as a human. Good. Um, sorry, that was probably more than you really ask about, but no. it, was a, it, it was a really good trip for me. Like I somehow not working has now got me ahead of where I was working. Yeah. Everybody needs to recharge their battery sometimes and getting out into nature is usually a good way to do that. Yeah. I, I did not realize how spun up I was. Yeah. Um, this trip was nice too, because I, and this is so not me, but I had a little bit of authority. I had some, well, not authority. I had some responsibilities and working with some of the new guys. Um, I actually, I, I took a little pleasure in that. Cool. And not just because I told them to do things like set their tents up in the line of army ants or something like that, which would normally entertain the hell out of me. <laughs> but like this time actually helping people, I, I kind of enjoyed it. Very cool. Speaking of shop stuff, I saw you do a, there was a whole mess of knives you had cut out and I saw a mag uh, in, engraved on a whole bunch of the handles. Uh, I am doing an absolutely ludicrous amount of magna cut right now uh we've talked about the advantages of working in batches you know, heat treat working steels and i have got a lot of back order so yeah i um i think i've got 32 magna cut blades cut out that i will start grinding tomorrow wow. so my life's gonna <laughs> suck that's gonna be a lot yeah, I think I'm going to profile all it'll it'll probably take me a day to profile all of those and then I'm going to break them up into batches to to work yeah, beyond that. Yeah, I think that. once you or I I do all my heat treating full thickness, but I I like to do bigger batches for the heat treat process just because you get a lot more use out of the liquid nitrogen and stuff when you're doing those. Yeah, and even with my doer, it only it only lasts a couple of weeks. So, and liquid nitrogen has yep. gotten expensive. Everything's getting expensive. Um, it almost tripled in cost since the really? last time I, I filled mine up. Mine's not gotten that much. Yeah. It's like $7, um, 7 to $10 more expensive. Um, how much more uh, uh, a liter are you paying? It's like a little over. Or like a quart or however they measure the doers. something a liter. Yeah, I'm at uh I'm at like three bucks. I have to see. I get it from air gas, which is a, a pretty large you know mm -hmm. for commercial welding and that sort of thing, but yeah. I may have to shop around a little bit. Sounds like maybe I'm getting Yeah. I'm paying a little extra it's, convenience. Fee. My thirty five liter one was like a little over seventy dollars with the tax and hazmat fee and stuff. Apparently there's a hazmat fee on liquid nitrogen now. Yeah, <laughs> uh, of course there is, because, you know, nitrogen gas is so dangerous. <laughs> yeah, not like it's most of our atmosphere. Uh, anyway, we digress. Last time I picked it up, I was in the Forerunner, and I had this, you know, I've got the sides rolled up, so it's basically just a pickup truck. Um, But I had to stop at a couple of lights, and you know, where stuff splashed and that sort of thing, the 
the doer subliming and I've kind of got smoke coming out and I got, uh, I got a couple of odd looks and kept waiting for somebody to pull me over. I thought you were going to say somebody said, are you going to get to 88 miles an hour? <laughs> God, I wish they had. <laughs> like no matter how they said that, I still would have appreciated it and found it funny. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, so got uh, glad to have that big batch of knives done. And those are all Magna cut too. So. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll know your hand sanding pain shortly. Well, I didn't hand sand any of them, so that was nice. <gasps> Sorry, blue. Yeah, I did do some blasted and tumbled finish that uh, some people were really liking, and I did some belt finish. Uh, I really like that. Matter of fact, you've just about convinced me on it. Well, I've always liked the tumble finish on working blades, uh, but I think I think it's about time for me to invest in a tumbler. Yeah, I can give you some some hints and tricks as much as I know, at least. Yeah, I, I would absolutely appreciate it. it. If nothing else, if you'll just let me know your mistakes so I can make entirely new mistakes on my own. Yeah. All right. You want to talk about our sponsors? I do. Um, And you know what? I get to go first and I'm going to go out of order. I'm going to talk about Phoenix Abrasive. I'm going to start there. First thing y'all need to know is use the discount code KP10, that's Kilo Papa 10, to get 10% off your order. I am very pleased. I'm taking full credit for it. It is clearly because of me and all seven of you listeners that have uh, harassed them, but they are now doing shop rolls and a lot more grits for the hand sanding, which I'm. I, well, y'all have heard me go on about it. I, I'm a big fan. Really, the only sheet goods I get anymore is some of the lower grits that I use for flattening stuff. And as I work through my sheet goods, I'm replacing them yeah. with rolls. I've also been really liking the Rhino stick that they're carrying now. Uh, so it's the Rhino wet paper, but it's two and three quarters inch wide and uh, already has an adhesive backing. So using your sanding sticks and radius sanding sticks, it goes right on there and you can hand sand those hollow grinds or works really well for the facets on handles and stuff like that, or the spines to. And how well, how well do they adhere to, Oh, I say a sanding buddy really well. So that's my preferred method for the paper on those. Now I used to like the double-sided tape with the rhino wet, but uh, the rhino stick, it is so much faster. It makes up for the little bit extra cost. Uh, I might have been doing it wrong because I've just been wrapping the sandpaper around it, mm -hmm. making sure that there's nothing between, like I don't get multiple wraps so that there's paper between the sandpaper and the, the sanding body. Mm -hmm. But I'll fold it over, sand until that piece gets worn out, and then tear it and fold it over and just feed it in that way, which probably is the reason I like the rolls so much. Yeah. I like the, I use, I cut it into strips and then I kind of pinch it at the top and then move it and pinch it. Yeah. Um, as I work down. Yeah. And rather than pinch the top, I'm just using friction in the front and back. Yeah. But when um, side note, that's why when the biometrics on my computer don't work, because I have sanded off my index and thumb <laughs> fingerprints. Uh, but yeah, the, the rhino stick stuff, uh, being able to stick it to that flat stick too, when you're trying to do some of those 
kind of tricky spots, not having to worry about pinching or holding the paper. There's some advantage to that. That makes sense. So we also have Chance Knife Supply, and you can use discount code KPGRIP for 10% off handle materials there and check out all of the the different jigs and things that they have. Uh, they also have a pretty sweet file workbook, so you can check that out there at Jance Knife Supply. Uh, a file book mm-hmm. workbook, you say? Um, does it come with like a, a helpful card with all the patterns already laid out on it? You can. I have found that that is vital in every good uh, file workbook. Yeah. Yeah. I really like how uh, that kind of like walks you through it. So it's been really nice. I even kind of hold it up there and mark some stuff out uh, to make sure that I, even though I've done some of the patterns a whole bunch of times, like my bubbles one, I still like to put some reference marks and stuff on there. I can hold it up next to the pattern. I have been tempted, and this may be blasphemy, and you may edit this out, but I've been tempted to use that card and get uh, Tuss to make some uh, stencils for my electrochemical destruction marking setup. Okay. Um, So that I can set the stencil in the spine, run the electrode over it really lightly, and then it transfers the pattern immediately to the spine for me. Yeah, that could work. I may be adding steps and making it more difficult, but that was just my, uh, what might be my lazy way to, to transfer a pattern. Yeah. Yeah. I'd usually just kind of like put a, a few little Sharpie dots and stuff. So I know where to do different things, but yeah, well, whatever works best for you, the, the biggest thing for file work for I've thought is making sure it's all laid out symmetrically. So I do all those reference lines every quarter of an inch, and that really helps me get that stuff looking consistent. It, nothing reinforces the fact that I am quote unquote neurodivergent than my absolute OCD level need for symmetry. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it drives my family nuts, but uh, it is one of the things that I like about the patterns that you mm-hmm. supply. Like it's it's symmetrical on both axes. Yeah. yeah. Don't use uh, color layered colored G10. That that'll drive you crazy. It drives me crazy. Oh, man! It's like mm-hmm. left to right. Um, on either side of the handle. Yeah, I it, I get really fixated on making sure all the colors are the right space and the right width, and, and they all line up around the pins and stuff. Yeah. There's there's a reason you don't see a lot of two tone stuff from me anymore. <laughs> All right, we also have Atlas. Speaking of hand, yeah, we also have Atlas Materials. They're a great sponsor of the podcast. Uh, Dan and Natasha are doing great things over there. Uh, Natasha asked me to let you guys know that they also do some discounts on their eBay page. So some of the stuff that they are kind of discontinuing or things that uh, the suppliers are no longer consistently stocking, uh, they'll put a discount on their eBay page. So check that out. um, If you're looking for some good deals. I I was late to the party on that, but especially for small batch work, there's some really good deals. Yeah. I know they do some colored liners, liner packs and stuff like that too. So uh, check that out. I'm going to take Ridge Runner Blades, now the domain of friend of the show and contributor, Taylor Grinds. Um, 
went I went up there just before I left, I guess a week or two before I left for the jungle. It is a really impressive store and they have got some big plans. If you're in the area, it's worth checking out, but if not, it, their online store, they are expanding their selection. Taylor's really been been curating some custom makers. Uh, they're trying to expand into some of the kitchen stuff right now. They're they're outdoor and tactical heavy. They've got a little bit of everything and really competitive pricing. Very cool. Yeah, they're doing so. They got a, all of your custom or a lot of their custom makers and a bunch of the production stuff. So definitely check them out. A, a surprising amount of the production stuff. I mean, if you're into that kind of thing, which you shouldn't be. But if you are. Uh, I carry a production blade every time because I don't want to destroy some of my custom stuff. So, you know, I have fallen in the terrible habit or the good habit of I sell all my good blades. So typically all the blades that I carry, I made them, but they're all the the factory seconds or the blemish. And I have found myself running into the situation where somebody's like, Oh, are you carrying one of your knives? And I'm torn between lying and say no <laughs> and say yes and then have to explain. But this is not an actual example of my work. I do much better. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to always have to pull out the phone and say, look at this. Yeah, I actually can pull off symmetry. Yeah. We also are sponsored by Set Supplies. Spencer, Ed, and Todd are doing some cool things over there. Check out all the different handle materials they're doing. Uh, Spencer's doing a bunch of stuff with the CNC mill, doing a bunch of routing and different things and pouring in there. It's a lot of really cool stuff. So uh, check it out. I get some very cool inlay mm-hmm. stuff. And some slingshots. Uh, Spencer decided to re- oh. revive the... Todd slingshot pattern that he hadn't made in a really long time. So, uh, the Todd shot that should be that should be what they call it. Oh, it, it is <laughs> from now on. Trademark, you got to pay us, Todd. We'll see if he's actually yeah. listening, like he says he is. And we also have Cage Daily Knives and Dogwood Custom Knives sponsoring the podcast. And uh, you can find dealers of Cage Daily Knives and Dogwood Custom Knives at Knife Center, like we mentioned before. And you can find Dan's knives at the Cook Station, Blade HQ, Ridge Runner Blades, and Asheville Crafted Edge. So check those out. You can find my knives at Northside Cutlery with Kevin over there doing some really cool stuff. And you can find my knife making tools at Phoenix Abrasives for the Sandy Buddy and Sanding Sticks and Housemade for the Carbide Straightening Hammer. And uh, you can find my Firework book at uh, Jance Knife Supply and USA Knife Maker. So check those out. It really pains me to tell you. Well, actually, I'm going to have have to compliment you twice in this show. But the straightening hammer, especially with uh, some of the Magna Cup warpage that I've gotten, has really saved like a solid 30% of my production. Like I've gone through the bucket of knives that will never be. And been mm-hmm. able to straighten some out with that hammer. Yeah, it. I I wish I would have known about it a lot earlier. Um, I'm so shocked more people didn't talk about it before. When I was talking to a bunch of people and telling them about it, they're like, "Yeah, I knew about that." I'm like, "What?" <laughs> so, not that I invented it, but uh, and I had never heard of it and uh, was shocked at how well it worked. 
and, and keeping in the spirit of the show, um, if if we have questions or we didn't know about mm-hmm. it, there's a good chance other makers didn't. Um, but it is, I will say, it is counterintuitive the way to mm-hmm. use it. So there's a good chance if somebody hadn't told me, I'd have never figured yep. it out. And in case this is your first one, you want to hammer on the inside curve. So as you hammer it, it makes a dent, which pushes the metal out and causes it to lay down flat. So you want to hit on the inside of the potato chip. And then uh, we've got. Uh, I feel like the word apex should be used somewhere. It's usually talking about the outside. Oh, is it? An apex of a corner is usually the. Yeah, I just thought that was the the absolute peak of a curve. I don't know. I'd have to I'd have to look. My my brain's not working. I'm an engineer. I don't know. Yep. (laughs) Uh, Guild Watch and Knife Shows. This will probably be released right as this show is happening. The Twin Cities Knife Show, uh, September 29th and 30th. It's the Midwest Knife Makers Guild show in Bloomington, Minnesota. Lots of great makers there. Definitely check it out if you are in the area. You want to talk about Blade West? I do, because it is one of my favorite shows. Blade West is going to be October 13th and 14th in Salt Lake City. Uh, The venue is really phenomenal. I was really impressed last year as as an exhibitor. The staff there, I mean, absolutely bent over backwards to help us out. Uh, and it's a really nice facility. Me being me, I love that this show is more culinary focused. And I'm really looking forward as this show develops. It's a, a chance for us kitchen guys to to get a little bit of the spotlight. So if you like knives, if you use knives, if you make knives, Really, if you're just a decent human being, Blade Show West, October 13th and 14th is where you want to be. Yep. yep. Salt Lake City, Utah. So, yeah, I I want to try to incorporate that more in, but we're, the stage of life we're in right now, my wife told me I only get to pick one one big knife show to travel to. So I've picked Atlanta so far. And economically, that makes the most sense. But at the... Uh, you probably get judged on my really messed up experience. You got seven, eight years, and then you can start yeah. traveling a little bit again. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to go ahead and, and get it out there. I, I'm, I'm going to say it once, and then we can just be done with this. But uh, that new uh, that new pin cutting jig yeah. that you made. Thanks. That's that's pretty awesome. I have made some similar things that were way jankier and absolutely looked hammered together. And the layout on that is, it is better than anything I've made. <laughs> All right. Aesthetic. Yeah. I was, I was really happy with how that ha- turned out. I, uh, I made that one out of plywood scraps and it worked really well for me for a really long time. And posted a random video of me using it, cutting up a whole bunch of stuff and then swag off road, the company that makes the table that I use for my porta band. Uh, they reposted it and I got a ton of messages of people wanting to buy something like that. So did some CAD work, 
printed out some samples and stuff. And yeah, the printer's been going nonstop uh, ever since I put it up on my website like a couple of days ago. I I love mine and I'm actually taking it by uh, look, my local woodworking store. Um, if nothing else, just so I can lord over them that I found a cool new tool mm-hmm. that they didn't know about. But the uses that for a knife maker are clear. But I think in a lot of the woodworking, the the old dowel mm-hmm. and pin style work, I think those guys are going to love it don't too. You, don't they usually, like, can't you buy dowels already pre-cut for the woodworking stuff? Or You can, but depending on... So, like, I used to like to do... I would do maple furniture with black walnut okay. uh, dowels. And it can be hard to find the dowel size you want. So frequently I'd get a buddy to turn them for me and then cut them to size. And then again, what I like about yours is I can cut it really close to the finished size. And yeah. there's a convenience. Yeah, there. there's three different uh, little spacers in there, three quarters of an inch, half an inch, and then a quarter of an inch. So you can do literally any combination in quarter inch increments from a quarter of an inch long all the way to an inch and a half. And bless your heart, you went all the way down to the ridiculously small diameter of, I believe, one sixteenth of an inch. Yeah, because I knew one person that uses a lot of sixteenth inch pin stock. And that person really appreciates it because (laughs) trying to make that drill hole in their janky jig was a real pain. (laughs) Yeah. Lines up really well. All the holes are uh, 10 thousandths bigger. That's what seemed to be the best for um, being able to slide it in and out uh, really nicely. So also when you get your, your rod and pin material from Atlas Materials, uh, putting it in a drill and then using some sandpaper on the outside to to roughen it up and bring that size down just a little bit really all feeds in there and goes through nicely. Um, and I haven't watched the video on how you intend to use it, but I have found uh, putting a little maneuverable, mo- removable block, you know, just a little piece of scrap micarta that I hold in place on the backside of the mm-hmm. hole push the pin in until it bottoms out, make my cut, move the block out of the way. And when I push the next piece of uh, pin stock in, cause I'm working from a longer piece, mm-hmm. it pushes that piece through the hole and then it drops in the tray. Yeah. And I just kind of at rote, knock that out 15, 20 times. And then I got a, a tray full of pin stock. Yeah. I usually just use my finger uh, until I kind of feel it. And then I move my finger out of the way as I push it. Uh, so did I, but I didn't know, you know, safety, OSHA, liability. I, I didn't yeah. know if I was going to admit that or not. Well, I mean, yeah. So you can feel feel when it's flush and you move yeah. your finger out of the way. Oh, no, that, that is clearly the better way of doing it. I just didn't know if I was allowed to admit that. Oh, yep. We well, can't give all the secrets away day one. <laughs> we're going to lose six of the seven listeners. Yeah. And uh, if you buy the 3D printed one, I include four of those little uh, screws so you can mount it to a board to put it in your port of band. Uh, I'm working on trying to get pricing and stuff for the wood 
to offer a little the wood base stew uh, for it. Um, I did not get the four screws, but I did get uh, some extra Plague Doctor knife perspective stickers. Yeah. So I'm going to call that more than an even trade. Yeah. Yours got shipped out before the screws came in. So uh, fortunately, I have next to the knives that will never be. I have the mason jar of random screws. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One of my one of my friends sent me a meme and it said uh, my dad had tw- or 20 coffee cans of random screws and bolts by the by this time or he was my age. I have zero. <laughs> uh, my dad used to call it the the damn it can of screws. <laughs> Because he would need four screws of a certain style and length, and he'd be able to find three and then say, damn it, I still have to go to the yeah. store. Yeah, funny stuff. All right. Do you have anything else? Do you want to uh, introduce our guest? I am going to uh, – I will. I am going to self-promote a little bit, but it is also relevant to this episode. Uh, I posted a couple of videos on the Dogwood Custom Knives Instagram of um, me being reintroduced to the Medivine, which are, uh, we'll talk more about it uh, later in the show, but they are the, the woodland spirits that hand out discipline among the Matisse. And um, it may turn out that um, that being caned is really my calling in life. I, I thought it was knife making, but uh, as of recording this, I believe I've got 43,000 views on um, either me being caned or me pulling the wood splinters out of my abdomen after being caned. Um, so if you're into that or you just want to see me getting the crap beat out of me, uh, go check out the video. I liked it on multiple levels. You know, I, I had you in mind when I was doing it. <laughs> like all I could think uh, is, I wish Kyle was here getting the crap beat out of him. Yeah. Maybe one day. <laughs> no, hey, you know, when you're ready to go, you let me know and we will find a way to make it happen. Yeah. Because it is that kind of trip. Yeah. All right. You want to introduce our guest? Yes. Yes, I would. All right. So tonight's guest, um, he may not be the youngest guest we've ever had, but he is certainly the youngest looking guest we've ever had. I have, uh, all joking aside, I, it has been really great to, uh, to get to know him over, I guess it's been the last 15 years. Kind of feel like I've, I've watched the little man grow up. Uh, first met him through the Becker heads. When he was a an innocent, fresh-faced boy dragging his girlfriend along to camping trips, probably one of the best-behaved, best-educated, certainly best-hygiene Beckerhead I've, I've ever met. A, he's been great to bounce ideas off. Uh, finally, he's, he's drank the Kool-Aid and started doing some making, but for a long time, he was a legitimate aficionado and a great source of information and some testing. Um, full disclosure, and this has nothing to do with him being on the podcast, but the last time I checked, he does have the largest private Dogwood Custom Knives collection. So clearly he's a, a beyond reproach in his, his taste and evaluation of knives. 
But uh, tonight, it is my pleasure, nay, my honor to introduce you to young Curtis. How are you doing tonight, Curtis? <laughs> oh, boy, I'm doing great. I'm, uh, I'm not sure I can live up to all the hype, but, uh, oh, man, I'm just tickled to hear all that. I thought, I thought, you, were, I thought you said you taped it in chat yeah. GPT. Well, my son's gotten into creative writing. I had him knock something together for me. <laughs> it was beautiful. <laughs> that thing's going to take over the world. <laughs> you know, that just makes me sound lazy. I mean, you might as well just say I take I made notes because everybody knows that didn't happen. He made notes, definitely. Uh, one second, guys. Come up with a new intro, or you... yeah. Well, we've got the we've got what you recorded. All right. I mean, I can do it again. It just probably won't be as good. <laughs> That's all no, right. Can't do it now. It needs to be just as good. No. Uh, I legitimately have actually tried to stop making Kyle's har- job harder than it needs to be. Yeah, that's much well, appreciated. Just because you tried, but does it actually get any easier? Uh, not exactly. Uh, in my efforts to make things easier, I find new ways to make it hard. <laughs> uh, that really makes a lot of sense, actually. Yeah. Uh, it's a gift. All right, Curtis. So uh, one of the questions we always like to start off is, uh, where'd you grow up? Yeah, I was born in Ohio. Um, Air Force child, so Wright Patterson Air Force Base. I really don't remember any of it because we moved away when I was two, um, and we moved to Memphis. And I've tried to leave, and I can't escape. So I always, I usually tell people I've, I grew up in Memphis, spent uh, almost my entire life here. Okay. And what was the first knife you remember carrying, getting? Um, first knife. I think my first knife was a Christmas gift from my uncle. And it is a, I still have it. Um, it was one of those Walmart Buck 112 Rangers. But, like, you know, Walmart always had a special Christmas box they'd come out with. Okay. Yeah. They used to, like they do it anymore. So um, it was a, I think my first real knife that was just mine was a Buck 112. Nice. That's solid. Now, for the most important question. Especially considering that I know that your vastly superior significant other is sitting just off camera. <laughs> How did you meet your wife and where does that fall on the Dan Kyle scale? Bro, I'm not even on the Dan Kyle scale. I've heard these <laughs> stories enough to know that y'all are on a different level completely. <laughs> I met my wife in church like a good Christian boy. Oh, <laughs> uh, Which church? It was Paul's church, not one of those snake ones. Where, where was the wake held that uh, day? Was that in the church? Uh, no. no. Oh, what I thought we had it there. I was like, oh, yep, that's church. No. Uh, no, I'm trying to think. Geez, I was 16 and she was 15. Um, and I just can't get rid of her. She's still around for some reason. Anything I do, she won't leave. It probably has something to do with the life insurance. Oh yeah, I did get life insurance. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot more sense. All those air, yeah. all those air miles. Uh, yeah. Oh, it does like the hotel points too? Mm. Yeah, that was that. Curtis is my new favorite person to travel with. Yeah, there's perks, you know. There's perks. <laughs> uh, no, I mean we're pretty boring. That was it. I've been we've been together for I don't even want to count the years now. It's been a long time. Um, we got married our last year of college, 
and yeah, no, we've been to we've been here for the long haul, and uh, we'll we'll keep going as long as she uh, won't leave me. I think that's more Kyle than Dan. <laughs> I think it is more Kyle than Dan. <laughs> Man, it's so far Kyle. Yeah. I mean, it's it's it out Kyle's Kyle. I'm afraid. Yeah, like that is that is wholesome squared. Mm-hmm. Wholesome. That's a good word. Wholesome. Mm. You know, the that's just the cover of the book. I've I've seen a few of the pages. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You've had the pleasure of meeting the wife. Yeah. On multiple occasions. I think I uh, she's been to a couple of Blade shows, right? You made you made one. A couple of Beckerhead yeah. gatherings. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. She still holds the record of the only woman to uh, ever attend a uh, a Camp Morningwood gathering, or mm. thus far. Thus far. Teal will probably break that one. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, Teal will probably be less interested in shopping in Greenville. Yeah, probably. <laughs> I got to give her credit. I I was amazed that she could put up with, it, with us for as long as she did. Yeah. No. She could uh, dish out just as much as she could take. Yeah. And I could tell when uh, when she was just done with this, when she would just break out the knitting. Yep. She'd be like, stab one, twist two, stab one, twist. <laughs> it's, Maybe uh, I should take up knitting. It's anger management therapy. You know, yeah. it really is. It's how she keeps her sanity. Yeah. I think it'd be the opposite for me. I think I would lose my sanity if I started knitting. Yeah, I mean, as soon as all my stuff came out, like all S-shaped and, you know, I'd have like a scarf that was tiny on one side and wide on the other. and it, It'd just be one more thing to upset me. Well, I told her, I told her you need to get on some socks for Dan. And I told her your shoe size. And she was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure we have a template for that. <laughs> you know, if you take. Two regular nine and a half and just put them together. (laughs) Two nine and a half. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) You know, I mean, what I lack in length, I make up for in width. It's, it's, it's a curse. (laughs) Yeah. Dan joked that his foot was square, not rectangle. I saw it. It's definitely square. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Before we lose all of our listeners, I mean, what can I say? I got hobbit feet all the way down to the hairy toes. <laughs> you want to talk about the uh, the trip that you and Curtis were just on? I was going to, but I actually was going to bait it a little bit. Because um, I think Curtis is one of the original Beckerheads. Ish. Ish? Um, not really original, original now. Oh, okay. Um, well, but, forget uh, it then. We don't have to talk about those involved. guys. Yeah, I would. I wouldn't start okay. with that one. Yeah, I'm definitely the most involved, or was. It's all dead now, but uh, not yet. Not yet. It's not doing mm-hmm. well, but you know, we, we there might be plans to revive a an East Coast gathering. Mm, I'll be all over that one. Um, it'll be much easier to get to than Montana. That is accurate. So, uh, speaking of the Beckerheads, do you want to give the little plug to your your blog website? information collection um sure absolutely um if you're looking for a any information on anything knife related that ethan becker has ever done from any error um because he's made knives with several different companies you can go to my blog it's the woodsman pilot um at blogspot 
Um, same as my Instagram handle. The Instagram has nothing to do with it, but um, easy to find. I think Instagram pops up first. Uh, the Woodsman Pilot, all one world, all one word. Um, and you can get lost in there for several hours and find lots of detail you didn't know existed. Hey, all kinds of little rabbit holes, especially if you've got a a becker that you're trying to identify. Yep. Um, it's, I mean, he goes, Curtis goes into which finishes were used by which company and which era and all kinds of stuff that I never would have thought of. A whole lot of little nuances to it. And, uh, the, uh, one of the manufacturers that Ethan partnered with early on did not make our lives any easier because there's just a whole lot of mystery stuff put out there. <laughs> and, uh, we still find new stuff to this day. Yeah. <laughs> You know, every now and then it's a Monday. You've got some stuff laying around, so you just run it through. Just run, <laughs> that's, yeah. That's yeah. like uh, yeah. Chevrolet with their custom badge, Ford's custom badge. Like, yeah, this one had some problems. <laughs> custom. custom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, that's exactly it. Hundred percent spot on. They uh, there would be special markings for the custom ones, hyped up to be custom or uh, one of a kind. One might say, and. Uh, they were far from that. Yeah. Well, they were one of a kind. They were definitely one of a kind, but not in a good yeah. way. You know, the best type of true is technically true. It is technically true. You cannot argue with that. I can't argue with that. It's technically true. It was a one And of it kind. sounds so much better than mistake. Yes, it does. I, or should I say marketable? It's very marketable. Uh, I always like to say that one was made at, you know, 4.30 on a Friday. Yeah, Friday afternoons are about as bad as Monday mornings. Yeah. Yeah, we used to when we were doing construction every so often you get a piece of equipment that just never ran right. And the joke was, always was that that was either a Monday morning or a Friday afternoon. Yep. Spot on. So just because I can, uh, my dad did fleet sales for uh, Ford for like 30 years. And they kept having problems with this truck. It kept getting sent back with this rattle. And they would drive it around, and sure enough, it was this loud rattle, and they had torn everything in the engine bay apart. It, they had gone through this truck. It had come in, come back five or six times, and finally somebody took uh, the driver's side door panel off. And inside, there was a glass bottle with a ball bearing in it and a note that said something along the lines of, you finally found it. Duke Kaboom! <laughs> And the best they can tell is somebody had gotten fired, and uh, on his way out at the assembly line, he had uh, he had dropped a glass bottle with a ball bearing inside one of the door panels. Nice. Yeah, uh, I'm sure that was fun. Uh, you know, I, it's one of the ones that I keep in my pocket. Should I ever find myself on an assembly line job that I think I'm going to be fired from, I mean, that's going to be my exit strategy. One of the other good ones is to tie a zip tie to their drive shaft. So mm. as it, it's speed dependent. So as it goes yep. faster, go and then as you like stop, it'll slow down and then stop. Like you won't hear it at uh, no speed. At, at idle. And then you got like a 50% chance that it's going to be in the up direction. So you don't, when you look underneath, you don't even see it hanging down. Um. Apparently, you can also zip tie a uh, harmonica to somebody's frame. Um, 
And if you've got it facing the right direction, it'll make a god awful noise. I'm sure none of you have ever actually done any of these things. No, no, I, anyone's vehicle. I, I saw it on Instagram. Yeah. Hey, sure. Yes. I, yeah. Instagram. Yeah. The, the nice thing about the harmonica thing is you can tuck it up out of the way because there's enough airflow underneath the vehicle that there's a a really good chance that that it'll get to it. <laughs> All right. This is a really detailed Instagram video. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Alrighty, Dan. Do you want to get you want to get back on on track? Um. Yeah. What were we talking about again? Oh, Curtis. Yeah. That guy's still here. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, as all seven of you probably have heard at this point, I am back from my ninth uh, expedition down to the Amazon. Um, and you've probably heard me blah, 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 a couple of times, old, jaded. So we thought we'd bring Curtis on. It was his first trip. So he had the advantage of hearing some stories and a little, uh, a little pre-warning, but thought it would be nice to, to hear a fresh new opinion from a, an optimistic, fresh faced, all American boy and his first time down in the Amazon and being beaten by natives. So I want to start, Curtis, with what did you expect? Um, you know, honestly, I had no idea what to expect. I, you know, you told me some stories. I'd heard stories from Joe, and there's just, you know, even in my brain, there's no way I could have accurately predicted from those stories what it was like. It's just something you have to really see and do for yourself. I was, um, I was really expecting Joe to be a little more machete crazy. And uh, he was very tame, you know. I don't think he cut himself, but maybe once or twice. Twice. Uh, actually, I think only once. And he, he is, we have done a, several interventions with Joe, and he was surprisingly professional on this trip. Good for him. Good for him. There, was, there wasn't any, like, arterial splatter. There was no... Um, there was no bullet ant sutures this time. I mean, he very tame, very tame of him. Yeah, I see why he uh, he has Peter with him because he needs to travel with a, a medic. I think Peter's there more for him than the group. Yeah, he actually. Now that you mention it, uh, Peter, who for those of y'all that don't know is uh, not only the medic for the group. I believe he's a wilderness first responder with with certifications or wilderness medic. Can't remember the term. Anyway, he's also uh, he's got some Spanish and he's a really skilled outdoorsman. So he's kind of Joe's number two on these trips. And he has now that you mention it, had an incredibly gentling experience or uh, influence on Joe. Kind of like when they have a really skittish racehorse and they put like uh, a goat in and like just having his little buddy around calms him down. It really is kind of that way with Joe and Peter. Yeah. I can see that kind of like a little emotional support, you know, goat, so to speak. Peter is the emotional support goat. You, you have nailed that. Goat, yeah. of course, being, you know, greatest of all time. Goat. Yeah. Yeah. That is yeah. totally what I meant. Not totally what we were talking about. Not silly little beard and has a, <laughs> an aroma problem. Uh, okay. But in all seriousness, I, it, I mean, at some point I've got to think that, that when you, we're all tucked into bed with your teddy bear and your fluffy blanket and you, you closed your eyes before you left for the jungle. You, it can be if totally wrong, but 
you, you had some sort of kind of preconceived notion, didn't you? Um, I thought we were going to be uh, just living wild and free. Um, I really thought it was going to be less structured than what it was. I was pleasantly surprised. Um, knowing Joe, Joe is just a hoot. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I was very surprised. It was a well-led expedition. I thought we would be, you know, fishing for every meal we ate, looking for food 24-7 and just living off the land. And it was it was just, it was quite a nice trip. Dare I say relaxing, but relaxing might be the wrong term. Relaxing to people like us. And it's, it was a really well run. I mean, they've, they've had a lot of trial and error and they've got it dialed in. And that location was phenomenal. We were... Yeah. And a little on a little high piece of land between one of the major tributaries for the Amazon and a lake. So it was kind of best of both worlds. Uh, we had a couple of dugouts on the lake um, and then had access to the the river, which ran with some bigger fish. And now that you mention it, it was one of the most bountiful trips we've had. And fish, we, we never we had fish anytime we wanted it. Anytime we wanted fish, we could get fish. I don't know if you noticed it, but the guides took two five-gallon buckets packed with uh, fish that hit, they had smoked during the trip. The food was so plentiful on this trip, they actually took food back with them. Wow. No, I didn't see that. I believe it, though. Uh, definitely believe it. That lake was a really, really great location, like you said. So was this not in the same location that you did last year where it was kind of like an island in the middle of a big lake or something? It is a differently, it's a different location every year. Okay. The last couple of years, they have found the the wisdom of being near a lake that, uh, that gives you a lot of freedom, uh, a lot more game. The hunting's a lot easier. Um, the, the fishing is, yeah, pretty much a little easier, uh, especially the lakes there, because in the lo- dry season, they start contracting and the, the fishing gets a lot easier. Uh, I think this spot was, it was like two and a half hours uh, boat ride away from the place we were last time. Hmm. So it's it's always somewhere that they've scouted, but it's last nine times uh, I haven't been to the same place twice. Okay. Um, and this, uh, we got to do something new that I've never done. Uh, be interested in getting Curtis's take on this, but there are, they're not eels. They're technically electric fish, but they carry a current like the, the eels that'll knock you unconscious. But they, this is going to sound weird, but they live under the, under the ground in the jungle. Uh, you'll get places where like a tree will die and the root and the stump uh, rots out and it leaves cavities that will fill with water. And a lot of the areas we're in are flooded during the rainy season or the wet season. And as the water contracts, the eels go down into these little caves and there's these network of little caves all under the, the jungle. And the Matisse know what to look for. They were one of the they were from one of the tribes that we were with and they were able to find, what would you say, Curtis, about a five foot long? I think it was over five feet. Yeah. Um, just barely. It was five feet, six, five foot six, maybe. 
it was impressive. Yeah. And basically pulled it up out of what looked like this little mud puddle in the, in the, in the jungle. I mean, that puddle was no more than six foot by five foot. Yeah. I, you know, clearly it went deep because of all the little networks, but when I looked like at it, yeah, I mean, it, it looked like a rain puddle. Yep. Um, And how, how far in would you say we were from the river? I was thinking 500 yards, maybe. Anymore? At most. No, it it was less than that. Less than that? Um, no, you're probably right, because I was thinking there was a bend of the river, but we were past the river. So, yeah, it was five, six hundred yards from from the bank of the river, and we're pulling this uh, this fish out of the ground. I mean, I, w- I tried to film it, and uh, it took them a while to do it, and it was just, you know, I was not expecting what they pulled out. I was expecting a foot two foot long kind of eel looking thing. Um, when they speared it and pulled it out and it just kept coming out of the hole, I was just blown away. It was, it was something to be seen for sure. And uh, they uh, harvested a vine and the sap from that vine, as I understand it binds to the oxygen in the water. And these particular fish, uh, they're like a lung fish. They have gills, but they have rudimentary lungs, which helps them move across the jungle floor if a water hole is too small or something of that nature. So the, the sap of this vine will bind to the, the oxygen in the water and the fish can't breathe it. And they'll come up to the surface to breathe air. Uh, and when they do, the, the Matisse will stab it with a, a wooden spear um, but man, those suckers are standing in the water and you can see like their body kind of lock up when they, they get zapped and they just keep going like completely indifferent to the fact that they just got hit with a taser yep. um, and we'll spear this thing, haul it out of the water and throw it on the ground and then cleanly and humanely uh, dispatch it in such a way as that we can pick it up without getting lit up. Hmm. Crazy. Yeah. I think it was the best way to describe it. Well, what was your what was your take on the on the meat? Um, it you know I would say like if you've had freshwater eel roll at a sushi place, similar. It's a little different. It reminded me more of and we were eating it in a much larger quantity. It reminded me if you ever get like a sashimi, um, straight eel sashimi, but it was prepared a little differently because they smoked it for over a day probably. They smoked it for a very long time. They marinated it and then did a slow smoke. And the the taste and the texture to me reminded me of Toro, like the the fatty belly cut. Yeah. Because it had that, that yeah. very soft kind of rich buttery texture and yeah. then really gentle notes of smoke. Um, yep. If I could have eaten nothing very- but that for the rest of the trip, I would have. Like I was, I was seriously considering flirting with the Matisse girls just to try and, well, women, just to try to get a little more. All right, the, there's no way that that sentence is going to end well. We're just, I know Kyle's not going to edit it out, but we're just going to leave it there. <laughs> Cut it out, Kyle. We'll see. Um, Depends on how much kickback I get. You know, it, Dan will make it worth your time, I'm sure. You know, now that really Beth hasn't listened in a while and we're down to the six listeners, I don't think anybody's <laughs> going to tell her, so. Five <laughs> listeners, so I'm, I'm not listening to this one. Oh, good point. 
So, <laughs> so you started off. So you flew in, and then you took a two and a half hour boat ride to where you stayed. Well, so let's wind it back. Um, start from the beginning. Thank you for getting us back on. Uh, flew into Bogota. From Bogota, flew down to Leticia. And then I'll let, uh, I'll let Curtis take it from there. So we get into Leticia, and we get picked up in a van and taken to a spot, and it's called Tananboca. Um, for lack of better terms, this is kind of our, our base camp. And we will kind of group over there and we kind of have a, a little extra day there because we need to make sure everyone makes their flights. We have a lot of paperwork and passport work to do before we head out because we're going to be traveling through multiple countries. So Tanimboka kind of becomes our base camp, our hub. Um, it, it, it turns out if you get pulled over by the Brazilian Navy, it goes a lot smoother if you actually have Brazilian visas and have maybe filed all your paperwork. So, so this year we, we spent a little time and then we ran across the border to Brazil and, and, and we checked a few extra boxes. I mean, did you try to bribe them? You just didn't have enough money? No. Um, I, I, I assumed you'd heard part of the, at least part of the story. Uh, last year, um, something had been going on just before we got down there. There'd been some incident and the, Brazilian Navy, who it sounds weird, but the Brazilian Navy controls their section of the Amazon because it's, I mean, there's places that it's what, like 16 kilometers wide. Yep. But usually, you know, you would cross the, the water border and a gunboat would run up, take a look at you, see, okay, you're cool, and then take off. But last year, the gunboat ran up and said, no, you're going to follow us. And we get there and somebody in the group had had some weed with them and hadn't told anybody about it. Didn't think to drop it over the side of the boat as we're being escorted in by the Brazilian Navy. And it was a tiny little amount, but it took hours before somebody with enough authority could come down to where we were, which is on the bow of a Brazilian cutter under armed guard. And side note, they were incredibly professional. The The Brazilians were, they were really cool. They were really polite. And everybody was like, look, man, this is, this is a silly situation, but I don't have the authority to do anything about it. We just got to go through the steps and eventually somebody kind of came down and said, look, man, we're, we're not putting somebody in jail for a joint. There was some, some rat, uh, some wrist slapping and that sort of thing. But it, it wound up that we were, we were guests of the Brazilian Navy for a couple of hours because some dumbass decided to bring a joint to a foreign country without notifying anybody like, say, the local fixer. Yeah, that would uh, put a dent in the schedule, I think. Yeah, I don't think they got invited back. Yeah, I would assume so. Mm, yeah, well, we, uh, you know, it's my first trip, but we we certainly spent a lot of time getting the paperwork in order in the beginning of the trip. So I suppose either way you do it, you're, uh, you have to waste time getting the paperwork and whatnot, everything dotted and crossed. 
So Curtis, what what you what you sleep in? Did you did you do the hammock or did you a tent? Uh, what you what you choose? I um I did a hammock, nothing fancy. I've had a Eno hammock since I think I bought it in 2012. I am not a hammock sleeper, as I have found out over the last almost over 10 years. I rarely use it. For this trip, I was strongly advised the way to go is hammock and hammock only. Yeah. Um, so the hammock came out and uh, um, used the matching rainfly. I've had the rainfly in the hammock for, yeah, since 2012. And this is probably the most use they ever had. Curtis had the tidiest camp of the people that built their camp solely by themselves. I mean, I don't know where the broom came from, but he swept the ground clear all around his hammock, just as one should, especially there. But I I swear he had a swept uh, bordered trail that went from like the main trail that went to camp out to to Curtis's Curtis's Shangri-La. Oh yeah. I swept, I swept the entire trail. Yeah. It, uh, it was a little tedious, but uh, I thought it needed the right, uh, you know, it looked it looked the part with a little trail going to it. It, it did. It was, it was well-groomed, and um, it certainly reduces the uh, the opportunities for you to step on roots that bite or um, bugs that bite or biting things that bite. Yep. So I assume there was a bug net with that, too, or? There was a bug net. Um, that I did not have. I had to buy that just for this trip. It uh, worked out great. I had uh, I had no complaints. Uh, bugs really did not bother me that bad. I didn't think the bugs were as bad as I thought they were going to be. Uh, I took Dan's advice and I sprayed everything I had with permethrin before I went. Uh, not to say there was not a lot of bugs. There was a lot of bugs, but it just was not as bad as I was anticipating. I they weren't. They were not. They were really not that bad, except the black flies. Uh, yeah. They worked me over pretty hard. Um, and I don't... The ants on that tree in the middle of camp didn't didn't make things easier either. Oh, I got... Everyone kept rubbing on, on the tree. Man, I must have gotten lit up four or five times. Yep. There was... I can't remember the species, but uh, they've got a really nasty bite. And they had a colony that just happened to be in a tree in the middle of camp. And as long as you didn't touch the tree... They were fine. They literally stayed on the tree all week. But if you so much as put a little pinky on it, it was like a hot, burning, stinging bite that would last hours. Yeah. No, I think the ant bites were some of the the worst bites you could get. Those ones, to me, seem to last longer and rash up more than anything else I got bit by. Yeah, uh, and this is the first year I got bit by a couple of um, bullet ants, and that uh, that woke me up in the morning. What uh, what were the ants that we stuck our hands into, do uh, you recall? Those are lucky ants. Lucky ants. So one of, so we've talked a little bit about the Matisse. They are one of the tribes. There was a uh, Yakuna, Takuna, Matisse, and I can't remember what... Uh, Witoto? Witoto, thank you. Were the tribes. And the Matisse are a Aboriginal tribe that made contact with the outside world in, I think, 74, 75. Sounds right. Late 70s. And, I mean, they live... They live the jungle 24-7. They don't play the jungle. They aren't just 
they hunt every day because if you're not hunting, you don't eat. They fish, they run trap lines. They're, they're the real deal. But part of their culture is, their concept is being alive hurts. If you want honey, you're going to get stung by bees. And really, you should learn to be indifferent to pain. Step on a thorn, not step on a thorn. You should have the same reaction to it. You really just shouldn't care because pain's a part of life. And they have a tradition. There are these little white ants, and it feels like a little electrical shock. And it's unpleasant for, you know, five or ten minutes. But unlike the bullet ants where, like, that bite lasts all day, sometimes days, these 15, 20 minutes, and it's pretty much done. And for good luck, before they go on a hunt, they will stick their hand in, or more specifically, one of the women, because in so many cultures, the women are far more cruel than the men. Um, they will stick your hand into one of these lucky ant mounds, and they will hold it there. You know, If you pull away hard enough, they'll let you pull off. But the, the idea is the more ant bites you get, the luckier you will be that day hunting. And I really did think it felt like a little electric shock. Was that the, the sensation you had? Yeah, um, it was It was not as bad as I thought it was going to be because I hadn't learned what a bullet ant was at that point. <laughs> but no, it was, like you said, it was not a bad ant bite. Really kind of like a fire ant from my local area. If you want a fire ant, it just bothers you for a few minutes. And then after that, it's gone completely. Um, it, not too bad at all. But after a while, it does build up a little bit. If longer you hold your hand in there and it concentrates on one spot, so to speak. And it can make it a little worse. But. Oh, yeah. And I forgot to tell Curtis to keep your fingers together. Because if they get down in the webbing between your fingers, that's that's that tends to be a little tender. The, uh, they really didn't get my hand. Like they stuck my hand in the hole, and they you know scooped stuff on top of it. And my hand was really past it, and it really went more on my wrist uh, um, and my, my my lower arm there than anything else. I think. Uh, one of the finger areas, but really just like one, maybe two. Everything else was higher up. And I prefer these to fire ants because the the pain level is about the same. It's a different type of pain, but where fire ants will fester and bother you for days these will get a little bump a little welt and like i said 15 20 minutes it's like you never got bit mm. at least that was my experience no no spot on um yeah spot on fire ants don't really i don't maybe you got weird skin fire ants don't bother me like that to me i, I same thing I get, I get a little welt they bother me for 15 minutes and then it's gone uh yeah i'll get a, a nasty little almost like uh almost looks like a little infected spot everywhere they bite me. Ooh. Which is why I have a uh, a burn any fire ants you see. Uh, yep. That's really my my first, last, and only answer for fire ants. Get rid of them. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, poison is too kind. I, I go with fire. Them in yellow jackets. Burn them out. Yep. Yep. It's the only way you can be certain. <laughs> All right. So... <laughs> So then did you go on a hunt after the lucky ants? So legally, we as non-citizens, we can go on a hunt, but we cannot kill anything. So other than fish, we didn't kill anything. 
we did have the opportunity to go out with some of the indigenous people. Um, so we, we, yeah, we went hunting, but we, we didn't kill anything because that would be illegal. Exactly. Uh, and we've jumped around a little bit. So we did a day in Leticia and then God, that boat ride was longer than two and a half hours. Wasn't it? Oh, the, the boat ride all yeah. said and done. It was like six hours. Yeah. Um, and it's, uh, I mean, it small, a relatively small boat with twin, I think it was 250 horsepower Mercury engines Yep. because it doesn't seem like the water is moving that fast until you start going upstream. Yep. Um, and early trips, it would be six or eight hours of breaking brush hiking. And, uh, Joe has learned that all the people that really want to do that have kind of done that. And that as loud and vibrating as the, the boat trip is, that's generally a more pleasant way to get into the bush. Yep. Um, and for the people that want a little harder experience, you can go out with one of the guides and hike and learn how to do trail markers and hunt and that sort of thing. Or you can stay in camp and, and do arts and crafts and learn you know, blowgun and bow making and basket making and kind of that kind of stuff from the, the indigenous. Uh, on this trip, really, it, it's the best of both worlds. I mean, if you want to have a hardcore experience, they can give you a hardcore experience. They can take you away from camp and you can set up your own camp and... You can fish to survive if you want to. Uh, personally, uh, the Matisse were phenomenal hunters. I mean, we showed up and they already had a pig. And that was a, I, I've done hungry and, and not having protein for the day because you didn't catch enough fish. And I mean, it made a man out of me and I'm, I'm glad for it, but I was just as glad to put my padded cushion on the, the log and, and have roast pork that night. Absolutely. I know Joe, Joe made a big deal of, you know, the trip can be tailored to you, difficulty level, whatever, whatever you're looking for, they can probably make it happen. If you're, you want to relax, you relax. If you want to go extreme, you go extreme. And, you know, the hunting, most of it, the fishing took place at night. And, you know, if you wanted to sit one out, it was no big deal. Um, I sat one night out. I didn't do anything. I just hung around the fire and crafted and uh, I was tired. It's a, it's a lot. It's a lot to keep going every single night, night after night. I don't know how Joe does it. Sunrise is 530 in the morning. Yep. That's the first thing. But like every time I'm like, ah, I'm going to sleep in. And at about five, the blessed, blessed birds would start up. And by 530, it was so loud and bright. You're not sleeping. That's like the first thing Goran told me when we got to Tanamboka. And he's like, you can sleep in if you want. But you won't be able to. The birds are going to wake you up no matter what. <laughs> there are not enough slingshots in the world to quiet those blessed creatures. Yep. Good job, Dan. Uh, and the uh, the hunting, truthfully, when they take us out. Um, we just slowed them down. There's not. Well, and I learn a lot of technique from them. And they are very patient knowing that if they take one of us, it's very unlikely that they're going to get game. But just 
following them, Tease, just watching how they move. I don't know if you noticed. I don't know if you went out uh, like hunting during the day with them, but their feet, when they walk, their ankle bones almost mm. hit each other. Their their stance is so narrow. And I didn't realize how wide my stance was, but when I started pulling my stance in and getting comfortable like that, my stalking got way better. I could move through the brush better. Short little steps. Yeah. And as they're taking short steps and moving faster than I am. Yeah. Well, and their legs were all of like two feet long. Yep. Um. Yeah, a a, t- a big Matisse will maybe come up to my chin, and I'm not a big man. Yeah. Uh, when we, uh, Joe, myself, uh, Mike, and Luca, we all went out because the first day we went on this long hike with the Matisse, and they had identified a hollow in a tree where there was a beehive, and they wanted to come back and get the honey later on. Uh, so maybe four days in, they decided to go back and we all went with them and um, it's probably four miles out there. Maybe if that, uh, maybe three yeah. miles. And we were all just, I mean, we thought we were making good pace and they were, you know, they were far ahead of us waiting on us for we get, before we got lost behind them. Yeah. You'd finally catch up with them and they'd like be taking a nap. Oh, yep. you're here. You're ready to go now. It, side note, that tree that he's talking about, I couldn't fit my arms all the way around it. And two of them cut that tree down with hand hatchets. Yep. One of the guys, I don't know how old he was, but do you have any idea how old he was? Uh, I'm trying to remember. Um, not uh, not barista. Uh, the other guy was, I'm pretty sure they said he was in his 60s. Yeah, I'm thinking upper 60s. Um, uh, he was hustling and he was flinging chips with that hatchet. Yeah, when he moves and he is frequently carrying a 12 to 14 foot blowgun and I can't keep up with him. Yep. Um, which uh, actually brings us up to uh, machetes, blades, tools. Uh, what were you expecting and what did you find as far as uh, your edge tools for the jungle? Um, you know, I talked to Joe briefly about it. And um, he basically advised me that we were not going to have be in a situation this time. Every time's different, I'm told, where we will be carrying our bags very far. He said no more than three miles. He told me bring all the machetes I want to bring and play with. And when Joe throws down a gauntlet like that, it's a challenge. <laughs> he was a uh, he was really encouraging. I brought three machetes. Don't think I used one of them. I brought two belt knives, a small neck knife of my own making, and my Leatherman. And the belt knives didn't even touch him once. The machetes were used. We mostly used them for clearing camp out. I would say that was the biggest use for machetes was we could camp out. We did some crafting with it on the hike. I don't think Dan was with me on that hike. Uh, I went out with Alberto on a hike and we used them a lot tearing stuff down and collecting forage materials and special bark for sheep making and all sorts of stuff. But other than that, what got used 90% of all the work was my neck knife. Camp carver, cutting up fish bait, cutting up food, 
anything you needed, that was the knife that got used. Could have used machete if you wanted a one-tool option. It that's what the uh, the tribesmen do. They just use machete for everything, and it's impressive to watch. But um, well, I'm a little more spoiled. I like to I like to have a small knife. I'm with you. I like a little like two and a half, three inch blade, and then a, a heavy work. But did you notice the way the machetes were ground for the the indigenous? Yep. The uh, Alberto lectured me on it. Um, as best he could without speaking the language, but it was very clear what he was trying to say. He uh, he used my machete uh, when he was showing us this palm, type of palm you can eat um, if you were surviving in the jungle. That's actually where Heart of Palms come from, is that tree. Yep, Heart of Palms. There, yep, that was the one. Um, and he basically was, you know, gesturing and pointing and, you know, no bueno, no bueno. Their machetes, they do not sharpen the whole length like we do. Um, they will only sharpen, say, the last four inches, and they will choke up on the machete in the middle of the blade, all around it, um, and use that as more of their purchase to turn the machete into a smaller knife. And they they really despise our machetes. And they think they're yeah, they, they call our machetes dangerous machetes. Um, yep. And they'll, they'll sharpen the sweet spot on theirs up towards the tip, like four inches or a third of the length of the blade. Because a proper chop, that's where they're going to hit. That's where there's the most leverage. Yep. And then to Curtis's point, when they want to do fine work, they just grab the middle of the blade because it's dull. And they'll have three quarters of the machete sticking out on the backside of their hand. And they're just using the front end as a small knife. Yep. And yeah, you know, I like to think that I've been using big blades for quite a while now. And I can be effective with it. And then I watched Alberto take my machete and he's harvesting small pieces with his hands just inches, if not even inches, away from where he's chopping. And he's putting some power into it, and his precision is just, it's unbelievable to watch. They've definitely been using the machete ever since they were born, because he, uh, he is keeping his hands where I would not, and he's perfectly precise, and he just seems to have all ten fingers still. They, to your point, they have been using a blade, a similar blade, literally since they were three or four years old. And I have never seen a person so precise with a blade. Yep. Um, I mean, they are surgeon precise with a full on backhanded swing. Yep. It was a, uh, I mean, I, I feel like this trip is, you spend less of the trip doing stuff than you do just watching them do it and be amazed. And, on the trips where we were having to break trail, we would use the machetes pretty heavily. Mm-hmm. Um, and we quickly learned that it's not like in the movies where you're taking these big, huge swings and you're trying to cut a three foot wide trail. It really is like your, your elbow never leaves your side and it's little snap cuts within about maybe 18 inches around you. And you're opening up just enough to slip through. But when you're when you're moving through the jungle off the trail, uh, we would frequently never even put our machete back in the sheath because mm. it was just always in your hand. Because even if you weren't cutting something, you'd use the flat of the blade to push something out of your way or it really becomes an everything tool. But to your point, once you're in camp, once you've cleared brush, almost everything you do, at least for me, is with that small knife. Absolutely. 
that's why I thought some of the, you know, we made a lot of projects, the, uh, the blowguns, we did a lot of carvings. I, I attempted to I attempted a spoon that I messed up. I attempted a shot glass, some sort of little liquid container. And all of that is done with a small knife. I thought I would be using a belt knife, um, doing some more dense woods, and no, really uh, didn't need it whatsoever. Part of what's been challenging for me as a maker for machetes down there is part of the time you're cutting soft succulents and you need a thin, fast, light blade. And you'll be cutting trees down and they'll be like pine. And then the next thing you know, you hit something like bloodwood that is several times denser than oak. And your blade, the requirement of your blade has suddenly gone from thin slicey to you're pounding it into concrete. It has been a, uh, it's been a challenge trying to get the perfect blade for that environment. I'm uh, on several of the machetes I have. I go back and forth because I feel like it's just that the machetes are so diverse. The type of grind I want on that machete is either very thin for the small thin stuff. Or, okay, maybe I will be tackling some semi-thicker stuff. I'd want a more thicker convex grind. And there does not seem to be a happy, this is good for everything. It's kind of, for me, I don't know, I've either one or the other. And uh, it's a compromise if you take a one more in the middle. Um, yeah, arguably, if you go in the middle, there's a 100% chance you're wrong. There you go. Uh, I did, like that logic. Did you notice? Uh, did you notice the length of the machetes they use? Um, they were shorter. I mean, they weren't any 16 inches. And that's one of the early lessons I got. What I always thought of a, a machete is a, a lowland or grass style machete. Yep. And when you're in thick brush like that, there's not enough room to swing. And those larger machetes, you'll get tangled up on your backswing. Um, mm. So they'll, it's not uncommon to see even a 12 inch machete around there. Because um, again, they're used. They're typically their elbows right by their side, and they're doing small snap cuts, and the the bigger blades just get tangled up in all the brush. So when you're out there on your other trips and you are having to break trail, um, what I assume are y'all following the leader, and you have one guy in the front who's doing the heavy chopping, clearing a trail, so to speak. Yeah. Um, yeah, we, uh, I mean, in line is the only way that's effective. And the lead person, we tend to rotate out somewhat because you got to follow the guide. Yep. Um, and clearing trail is not what you would think of as clearing trail. It really is you know, the branch that's hanging right over where you need to be or the vine that's coming across between the two trees. So you're not clearing trail as in creating two parallel walls three feet apart. Um, you're just trimming a little bit here and there to make just enough room to weave yourself through. But mm. even doing that, the front two or three guys are are working their blades pretty nonstop. And like I said, it's not just cutting. It's using the flat to push things out of the way. Because you learned pretty quickly, uh, touch, no touch. Um, yep. You, you don't grab trees. You don't grab branches. Really, you don't 
I've gotten in the habit of I touch very little with my bare hand first. Yep. Um, that is something I think Joe and Gordon were saying back in Tanamboga before we even got to the jungle. And I don't think I fully comprehended that until we got there. I think what they exactly said may have been an exaggeration, but they were if you if you're falling on a trail, you're walking and you trip on a root and you fall, you just fall face first in the ground. It's better than trying to grab something and hold yourself up. Um, and that is that was a very accurate. There is a lot of things you do not want to grab with your full body weight. There's there's lots of sharp, delicate spines that break off in your hand. Uh, there's little ants that build their colonies up in the trees, and if you bump a tree or grab it then it just rains tiny angry ants that go down the back of your shirt and get in your gear and everybody within 10 feet hates you. Um, There are wasps that build nests in kind of folded leaves. So it doesn't take much motion to disturb Mm. their nests. Um, And on these trips, now that we're not hiking in as much, you know, the guys that want to go on trips, when it's just one or two guys doing day trips, it's easier to manage. Yep. But we used to have to take a day, day and a half, kind of headed in, just hammering on people. Just fall. Don't grab things. And teaching people to just fall so they don't sling their their hand with their machete around trying to take balance yep. and that sort of thing. I think that was part of Joe's little safety warning is no lanyards because lanyard means the machete is going to stay on your body. Yeah. And I, uh, when I do a lanyard, I actually do a Ford lander lanyard hold for the blades that I take to the jungle. And I will wrap them like the guys in blade sports do. Mm -hmm. Cause if the, if the lanyard is at the butt of the blade and it flies out of your hand, it's just going to pendulum and come back. And it's either going to hit you or the guy next to you. So you don't do the slipknot in the front lanyard. You do the wrap. Yeah. You wrap it around multiple times. What I'll do is I put my thumb through the loop and then I roll my hand and I grab the blade. Um, It's the same thing we used to do with a a baton when I was in the army because it would, it would wrap I mean, if I let go of it, it kind of tied the blade into my hand. But if I needed to, if you roll your wrist, then your your wrist, your hand rolls out of the loop and you can get free of it. Um, and I do that to prevent the pendulum. Although frequently yeah, in the jungle, a lot of times I just won't use, it's better for the blade to go flying and go look for it. That's that's what I've been doing recently. Is I I tried, I never liked the the back lanyard hole. The uh, the forward lanyard is seems to be a newer concept. I say a lot of new blade makers are doing that. Um, and I tried the slip knot uh, a little while ago. The first one I tried on was an LT right machete, and it just was not comfortable because um, no matter how loose you made it, the springing of the machete coming forward yanked on that paracord and then it yanked on your wrist and you don't feel it after the first couple swings but after you use it for a while it really just hurt um so i need to try i've seen them do it like you're talking about the blade sports i've never tried it though in action 
and what I'll do, a, a blade that I actually take out and work with, I'll run the cord through the loop and then I'll put a cable lock on it or just a ring that'll slide up and down and okay. I knot the ends. So when I'm walking around on the trail, I slide the ring or the cable lock all the way forward and it gives me just two loose ends. So there's not a big loop to hang on things. And then when I need to use it for safety, I slide the cord lock or the ring back and it opens up and forms the loop. Like I said, I'll put my, I won't show y'all because people listening can't see. Uh, Kyle will remind me to do a quick video, but Mm -hmm. I put my thumb through the loop and then roll my wrist and grab the blade. Um, And that, that pretty well ties it into my hand. So even if I let go, it tends to stay in the webbing of my thumb. But it's easy to to get out of it. Okay. Yeah, make a little uh, Instagram video. I wanna I wanna see that. All right. Um, put it put it on the to do list. You know, I'm gonna have my people. Yeah. I'm I'm all for having lists for Dan stuff for Dan to do. <laughs> you know, There's somebody pulling their weight. And now that you've now that you've said it, I'll know every time Kyle takes a break because I'll get a phone call. Hey, have you done the video yet? <laughs> perfect <laughs> glad i could be of assistance yeah yep. anything you can do to make me more uncomfortable i i appreciate it so what what'd you do for fishing uh do you do the handline fishing again and some uh, smaller fish for bait or they um we had a gill net um that helped provide some bait fish for us uh, side note that's legal in the amazon Yes, absolutely legal. Um, we, uh, I had a collapsible fishing pole that I brought. Um, I used that to pretty good effect. Um, I'm not much of a fisherman, but uh, it seemed to work really well. It's nothing big, nothing fancy. I was, uh, Joe even told me, you know, we're not catching monster fish generally. You were, you know, anything relatively good size, we're going to keep and eat. So even a small little setup was very effective. Um, we weren't using the fishing poles for spearfishing. I don't think anybody used a handline setup that I saw. At least I wasn't a part of that that group at the time. If they did, the the water was a little big this year. the The handlines we mostly used on the the small streams that we would camp by, mm. and those would be you know creeks maybe six seven feet wide, but. Uh, with some small pools that would be 10, 20 feet wide. But because of the heavy brush around them and the size, uh, fishing poles w- would get in the way and hand lines were easier. Or I think they did it late in this trip. But there's a very distinct tree that you can harvest and it's got action like uh, River Cane does down in the southeast. Uh, and you'd use it like a cane pole. Yep. Um, Gorin, we were talking about that in the last day, and then we ended up doing Matisse activities before we ended up actually executing that plan. I think Gorin had one. They were talking about that. Yeah, and action. his son Luca uses it, and he's he's amazing with it. Um, you know, the line is basically as long as the pole, so he'll kind of flip it out, like uh, almost like fly fishing, 
but to get under underbrush and stuff, he'll grab the pole in one hand and hold the hook in two fingers, like by the bait and bend the pole back and use it almost like a slingshot. And we'll shoot the bait parallel to the water up under and into the brush. Uh, it's, he's wow. pretty amazing to watch. And then the spear fishing down there, they'll do it two ways. They'll either use a fairly short spear that will float from the boat. And I don't know if you did that. I don't know if we did that this year or not. I don't think we did that. All the spears we had were the uh, very long we did from the bank. And the short spears, they'll paddle very gently through the water and basically spotlight the fish and then throw the spear. Um, what Curtis and then we're doing, man, those they're what about ten foot shafts on those? Yeah, um, and ten foot easy. Which technique were y'all using? Where you you grip it way at the back and it's like a thrusting motion? Yes, and we were we were just trying to uh, creep along the banks and look for fish there. Um, and and the guides the guides were just crushing it. I mean, I don't know how they saw the fish. I'm looking at the same thing they are, and they saw the fish. I didn't see it. We were definitely in the way of what they were doing on that one. On those, the they'll go at night where the fish are more docile or swimming. And again, they'll almost spotlight. They'll run the light along and they're looking for the eyes to, to flash, usually red. And then with some practice, when the eyes will catch your attention and then you can see the shadow of the fish. You don't necessarily see the fish, but you'll see the shadow. And then it took me forever to learn to aim a couple of inches below the fish because the, the light refracting through the water, it's the fish actually looks a little higher than it is. Mm, okay. So you aim a little forward and a, a little low and a little forward because nine times out of 10, they wake up and bolt just before you hit them with the spear. So you try to get a little forward and a, a little below them. Yeah. Sorry, well, I forgot I was, to tell uh, you that. I was not successful in the spear fishing, uh, but it was still just a pleasure to watch them be in their element. And uh, it was, uh, like I said, it's just impressive. Unbelievable to watch. Um, and it's a, it's an interesting survival technique, my opinion. Uh, you could fashion a fishing spear or uh, they make some fairly light two and three prong heads that are easy to, to have as a survival kit. Yep. Cut a long pole and ease along a creek at night. The same techniques will work up here that do down there. Uh, Joe made one of the spears from, I wish I could remember the company. Joe, Joe knew the company, but it was one of those, uh, you know, like metal credit card size things. And you pop the prongs out of it. Uh, you get three of them and you lash it. They were using that. Um, is that the one they took the Cayman with? Mm, I don't know. I don't know for sure. Um, but it was definitely, I think they had, he had two different ones, I think from the same company, but they were different sizes. So it was one of them was like, you know, tiny credit card size. And the other one was a little bit bigger of a setup. Um, and I think that was two of our, we, you know, we probably had what, five, five or six beers made. Yeah. Two of them were out of the stuff Joe brought. So what was the, uh, 
what was the coolest thing you saw and what was the coolest thing you did? Hmm. Coolest thing I saw is either them catching that eel fish or them harvesting the honey. Um, those two were just, like I said, we were, you're not very active. I mean, we were just truly sitting back watching the Matisse do what they do. And it's just, it's just amazing. Just amazing to be witness to it really. Um, it, it really is an, uh, it's almost a Hemingway style expedition. Yeah. You're there and you're doing, and you can work as hard as you want. Uh, you can also sit back and watch the professionals do what the professionals do. Yep. Um, and it was, uh, you know, we made, we made a dock out in the lake, um, because the, <laughs> the, 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 the getting into the lake was a little difficult with all the down trees and the mud and, and we the were mud. bathing and fishing. The mud would suck um, the sandals right off of your feet, like knee deep. Yep. And hygiene is no joke down there. You're you're bathing two, three times a day. Yep. Um, that took us half the day to build that dock. Yeah. And the Matisse built us a table to eat on and a little shelter for our table in two hours, if that. Yeah. Um. Yeah, several of the Alberto and a couple of his buddies didn't trust our dock. Yeah, <laughs> but I would point out that my two hundred plus t- pounds had no issues. I had no issues the entire time either. That was a good dock. It was. I, I dare I say, what's up, Doc? Boo. Oh, there it is. <laughs> Dan, how about yourself? What was a um, same question to you? So, and of course, you've been on a lot of these trips, so you've seen a lot more. Yeah, um, the the electric fish was really cool, both the technique and it was they prepared it this time, and it was really a delicacy. Like I, yeah, if I could have eel prepared that way again, I would go just for that. Fine um, dining in the jungle. And God, I, I know how cheesy I'm about to sound and I truly regret it. But one of the coolest and my favorite things is seeing um, guys like you and Teal and a couple other the people that it was their first trip, like, you know, day one kind of overwhelmed. And then by day three, getting comfortable day four and five, you're not wearing your boots you're moving in the jungle you've picked up the techniques and we're getting ready to leave the boat or getting ready to go to the boat and people like oh just you know one more night like i'm just starting to get the the feel for this i've got the rhythm watching that transition is i guess it's like you know a a father watching their son kind of go through that that same experience. Cause I remember those stages and it's, it's really rewarding to watch the, the confidence build, the skill set build. Um, so it, the people really have become my favorite part of the trip. The, uh, when I first talked to Joe about it, he told me, um, that I was going to get addicted to it because, his most of his customers are repeat customers 
like yourself. Yeah, over um, half that trip were repeat customers this year. And then, like you just said, that last day, we were all like, oh, I want to stay. And that's that's exactly what it is. There's a sense of, I'm not done yet. I've got to go back. Uh, I've got more to do. I've got more to see. I've got more just to witness. Um, and I don't know if I can make it back next year or uh, every year, but I'm going back um, for sure. Every year at the end of the trip, there's something that I didn't do. Like there was... And the following year, I start the trip with, I'm going to do this thing and I'm going to commit and I'm going to, and I get a couple of days into the trip and every year it's a new thing. I don't know if the trip changes, I change, but that mountain that last year I left and climbing that mountain was the only thing that mattered to me on the next trip. There's always a new mountain. Yep. And I think that's the, the blessing and the curse. Mm. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Gear. Um, do you have any must haves? Um, and then was there gear that you really expected to need and you realized you just didn't need it? Um, and why was it alcohol? I needed more alcohol. You're right. Uh, did not bring enough alcohol. Uh, uh, for you know, municipal purposes, really, for cleaning the bug bites and, and deconning our gear and, and cleaning the water. Oh, I wasn't talking about drinking alcohol. Is that what you were talking about? No, no, no. I was just being clear for our listeners. Oh, good. Good. I'm glad. I, yeah, we make sure they understand. Uh, clearly for cleaning. Uh, no, I uh, I feel like I've done enough. You know, this is definitely more extreme. I've done a lot of camping. I feel like I was pretty well prepared um, I wish I did not bring Crocs. Joe's going to kill me for saying that. Um, I, I have a pair of Crocs. I've had them for well over a decade. I've had these Crocs. I've had these back when I was backpacking in high school. Um, they're always the river crossing shoe. They were never a shoe that you wore for more than 15 minutes. And this trip was definitely an environment where you don't want to have your boots on all the time. So the other shoes I brought were Crocs. And when you wear Crocs all day, every day, in and out, I find that they kind of rub my feet a little raw in some certain spots. So yeah. the Crocs got cut up, literally cut up in the spots they were rubbing the outside of my feet on. Um, and Joe had assured me that everybody wears Crocs. And 95% of the people who come wear Crocs. And then I go to the trip and I find that Actually, only Joe's wearing Crocs. Everyone else is wearing sandals. <laughs> uh, Joe and Nemanja love their Crocs. I I just can't get down with them. Yeah. Um, uh, and I got nothing against Crocs. Like I said, I've had Crocs. Either you know you put them on and take the dog out for a walk. Um, but when you're really, really moving in Crocs with wet feet all the time, I have learned that they don't agree with my feet. I have I have struggled because. Um, I used to take Chacos and there's a lot of good things about Chacos. They stay on my feet. They're strappy, they're sandals, but that's way more soul than you need in the jungle. They tend to get heavy and kind of clunky. Um, flip flops, they work, but it's really nice to have the heel strap for mud and that kind of thing. And also not make a noise. Yeah. 
<laughs> which I still don't understand how, but sometimes somehow the Matisse walk around in flip flops. Well, actually, all of the indigenous were walking around in flip flops, not making noise. But he was. I think you could write a, a doctoral dissertation in physics and probably biomechanics on how they somehow walk around with in flip flops without going flippity flop. Hmm. Did they have a rubber? Do they have a rubber sole or were they like a leather sole? Um, they looked like just inexpensive rubber flip flops. Huh. Yeah, like I mean, the cheapest ones, not nothing nice. Yeah. Um, and I tried some minimalist sandals, but they, I got bad knees, and they, I just needed a little more padding. And I got turned on to Luna's this year, and it took a little while to tweak like the settings on the straps, but the, the Luna wings, I, I, I think I'm ready to drink the Kool-Aid on those. I think, uh, my next trip, whenever that is, I'll be, I'll be following. Uh, I tried Chaco's a long time ago and I found out nothing wrong with Chaco's. I have no complaints of Chaco's. Definitely a me problem. Um, my feet just get so sweaty and the textured grip, if it wasn't textured, it would be good. But because my feet get so sweaty, if I strap them down, it still rubs and gives me hot spots. This needs to be a flat, smooth surface. That's all. I think that'd be the ticket. If I were going to be walking all day, like if I was urban backpacking, you know, walking through Spain or something, I like Chacos because they're really just a tennis shoe with some straps. Yep. But if I'm not going to be on pavement or if I'm not walking all day, all of that footbed is just wasted. It, it winds up being heavy. They're, they're very heavy. They're probably the heaviest um, sandal. And the other thing that I liked about Luna's is there are some rumors about me having extra wide feet. And if they were true, generally most sandals don't come in six E widths. So I wind up with it's either way too narrow or way too long. And I don't know if Luna's intended this way or not, but I could actually buy them a couple of sizes big and then use a pair of shears and trim the front down. And then I had the advantage of a, a nice belt grinder. I put on like a 600 grit belt and slowed it down and just cleaned up where I'd cut it with the shears. And they leave a lot of extra in the toe that doesn't have tread on it. So when you trim it down, the, the sole still works. So with people mm -hmm. like me that have odd feet, the Lunas were really easy to modify and then not look like you had modified them. Selling point for my fellow hobbits out there. Well, Excellent. isn't there a saying about big feet and big shoes? Something else? Big gloves. No, no. Yeah. Gloves go on hands, <laughs> yeah, Kyle. Cool. Big shoes. Feet go. <laughs> shoes go on feet. <laughs> <laughs> big feet, big shoes, big hands, big. Yeah. Big something else? Uh, I'm just saying the rumors are true. Okay. I, I do wear really wide feet or socks, shoes, shoes. I wear really wide shoes. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Uh, is there anything you would do differently when you were, if you were to go back? Um, differently. Um, do you take a bigger backpack? I would take 
I would take less knives. Um, I would, the backpack, I think the size was good. Um, I could have taken more stuff, sure, but I think I think the backpack is great the size it is because it limits you. At least in my mind it does. It kind of limits you, like, you know, only what fits in the bag. Um, the, those easy walks kind of tempt you into taking way more crap than you need. Yep. Uh, and like I said, I had three machetes, and I only used, I, I didn't even use one of them the whole time. Don't, I mean, that's the thing. Joe is it's spot on with what he's saying. You can bring as much as you want. We're not huffing it that much. Uh, if you're comfortable with a little extra weight for a small amount of time, no big deal. Bring all the stuff you want. And that's a, that's a really good perk of the trip. Um, my, my, uh, my, um, Hillinox chair zero with a, uh, ground pad, ground cool. cloth. I, I would put that in necessary gear. Yeah. Okay. There's one. I'm bringing a chair next time. I did bring a chair. It is a really great product from the Hidden Woodsman, and it's just a canvas sheet, basically. And he's got looping stitched into it, so you build a tripod, lash the top to the top of the tripod, another half goes, a stick goes through it, and you have a chair anywhere. And it packs down to, you know, a very, very small, folded-up piece of canvas. And I've used it a couple times now, and I've always been happy with the product, but for a trip of this duration, it's it would be nice to have a more back support, a little more, a little more comfy on the tush. Well, and when you've got a fixed base camp for a week more, um, the local contact Gorin used to give me hell about my chair because he would do some things simpler, similar to core Curtis. He would bushcraft a chair that involved, um, you know, driving some stakes into the ground and then I would give him hell about, I would just, when the wind changed and the smoke was in my face, I'd just pick up my chair and move it. And some of these really lightweight chairs, I mean, on one hand, I feel a little bit like a schmuck with uh, taking my chair in, but it's just easier to move a chair than a log or the, the, the sticks that you have built into a chair. And if you're going to be one night and then you're moving camp the next day and moving camp the next day, there's an argument. But if you're going to be set somewhere, being able to move your chair around is, is kind of a, it's kind of a boss move. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, uh, definitely. I will put a chair on the list. The next one. Um, where, where are you on fairy lights? Are you you pro or con fairy lights for your I'm, camp? I'm split on that one. I do think it would have been nice to have some sort of light system that stayed in the inside of my hammock bug net the entire time. Um, because I ended up having to take my headlight with me to bed and then zip it all up in the bug net. And then I'd leave it in there and then it'd get dark. And I'd be like, oh, yeah, I gotta go find my bug light. Uh, my, my bug light, my, uh, my headlight, because I left it when I woke up in the morning and it's not in my little bag that I carry with me everywhere like it should be. Um, so the twinkle lights, you know, that could be, that could fill that gap. Absolutely. Um, small little kind of lantern thingy, kind of like what you had, the, the color changing thing that could have also that, worked. Beth really knocked it out of the park on that. That was a Christmas present. And it is, I've done a couple of the inflatable ones and they worked kind of okay, but Beth found this one. It's collapsible. Uh, and it's it's 
clear silicone that collapsed down and the center part of it is a solar cell, a battery and LED lights. So it packs flat like a collapsible silicone cup, but expands out and um, it does have a great color changing disco effect that was Mm -hmm. really, it was really a nice touch at uh, jungle or uh, monkey Joe's jungle room. Monkey Joe's Jungle Room. Oh, yes. Yeah. And see, there's another reason it'd be nice to have a chair that is easier, e- easier to move. Uh, moving from base camp to Jungle Joe's and back and forth and back to my camp. Uh, the whole tripod setup, it is mobile, but uh, it's not, uh, not the easiest thing to keep moving all the time. This camp was a little more spread out than most, but in the jungle, you learn really quickly. You want your food prep area well distance from your cook area, which you want distance from your, your eating area, which is also distance from your hangout area. Yep. Uh, and a lot of that just has to do with insects. If, yep. if you're one or two days in a place, it doesn't matter, but there's spills, there's food particles, there's grains of sugar that over time, those areas, if they overlap, the bugs will get terrible. But you you quickly find that the table that you eat at is not the table you necessarily want to hang out at. I think that's why later in the week, the, the bugs were getting worse, probably because we were all congregating where we were eating more so um, than we should have. And, you know, one or two people spill a little bit of sugar when they're putting sugar in their coffee or they spill some soup and it runs down between the boards on the, the homemade table. And that's, that just starts to pull bugs in and there's a, a cumulative effect. And the, uh, the Matisse, uh, I feel like it was Joe, you know, they had that hog. They, before we even got there, they'd already been on the land and they had a lot of game they'd taken and they would skin it and leave everything just, you know, next to the fire basically. And I think it was Joe saying that, you know, normally they don't stay in the same place for this long and they were not used to having to, okay, we might need to walk away and dispose of the, the guts and the hide because normally it's not a big deal. They can just leave it there. They're, they're going to be out of there the next day. And it was attracting a lot of bugs. Yeah. And their hunting camps, you're absolutely right. They, you know, that they'll hunt all night, come in that day, process, and then they'll move after a day or two. Um, and in their village, it's a very clearly delineated area, but yeah, Mm -hmm. this, uh, this trip, some of the game processing right next to where we were working, it it got a little buggy. Yeah. Now, have you ever been to the village Are are outsiders allowed to go to the villages? I have not. Um, it is extremely difficult to get permission from the Brazilian government. I don't know if you were there or not, but when the, the military came through and were checking our documentation. That's when I was out in the honey hunt. So I, I didn't uh, see any of it. We were actually right on the edge of the Matisse Preserve. Mm-hmm. And the preserve, and I don't remember the correct initials for the Brazilian government Foo, entity Foo something an f funai uh funai i believe it is and 
it is, it's not too difficult for the Mentees to come out to meet us, to interact with us. But for somebody to go into the preserve, really, you've got to either be a medical professional or an archaeologist or a linguist, somebody with a really legitimate reason to be interacting, yeah. or you cannot get permits to go into that area. Yep. Um, because there's still several uncontacted tribes in that area that not only is there the concern of disease and that sort of thing, keeping them safe, but they get territorial Yep. and you can be stupid and go on the wrong trail and you will not be seen again. So it is kind of a mutual protection thing. They are protecting the indigenous from us. And to some lesser degree, protecting us from the indigenous. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that is, it is actually a huge deal. I've gotten kind of accustomed to it because I've been around a couple of times. But <clears throat> because of Gorin and his relationship with the tribes in, in Peru, Brazil, Colombia, he has just a really phenomenal reputation with them that they're willing to to work with him. Typically to spend time with Matisse the way we do, you've got to be National Geographic, History Channel. Like, a, I probably don't give the emphasis that I should, that the, the Witoto, the Yakuna, the Takuna, it, it's a huge deal to spend time with them in the jungle, especially guys uh, like Alberto who were 20 something the first time they were in a town. Yeah. Um, but they, they interact with the outside culture. They're not uh, a protected people to be able to interact with the, the Matisse. Uh, there are researchers that pay $40,000 for the opportunity to go down and spend time with the Matisse. Like that's a, that is something that I realized that I've completely taken for granted. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm surprised there's not more people, academics who are coming with you on this trip. Um, it is, I think it is because it has been so marketed in the, the outdoor and the bushcraft community that they don't know. But I, I actually was talking to, to Joe and Goran because, uh, we were trying to do, there's no, there's no, uh, there's not a lot of translation, translation, uh, documentation in the Matisse language. And we were actually trying to get some good audio recordings of some simple, um, not just vocabulary, but syntax, the, the way they structure their speech. Mm -hmm. Um, and I quickly realized that I, just do not have the education to do that properly. Yeah. And there's been some conversation about some of the next trips may include uh, some researchers, which I am kind of of the opinion that it's a great opportunity for the researchers to do the research, but it's also a new perspective for those of us on the trip. Yeah. Cause it's one of the things I've enjoyed. I mean, Teal and Andy had a very different approach to why they were there. Um, 
the the Serb mafia had a, a different approach. Um, guys like uh, you and Silent Mike had a different approach. So that kind of combination of perspective is one of the things I enjoy about the trip. Yeah. And being able to have a researcher be aware of things, educate us, because there are things that are going on that I'm oblivious to that are a huge deal. Um, so kind of like Teal with her noticing the different weaving patterns that they were using. And I was oblivious to that until she pointed it out. And now I realized that that was both culturally and functionally kind of a huge thing. Yeah. Um, so I'm thinking with, with some academics along, assuming they're not the stereotypical poem Dexter that, might be a, a fun new aspect to the trips. Yeah. Um, it's going to take the right academic. It's going to take the, you know, the Indiana Jones type. Someone will get their hands dirty because it's not going to be a, uh, it's not a trip for someone who's never been camping before. Um, or uh, the assistant to the junior sub guide will just get stuck babysitting the academic. Oh, that guy, he's just no good. No good at all. <laughs> I, you told me you were going to give him four and a half stars. <laughs> eh, we'll just we'll say four stars, maybe. maybe. I, I heard that he carried the extra vodka for you. Well, you got me there. He did. He did. Okay, fine. He did, but ask me how much that vodka I drank. Yeah, so maybe he <laughs> drank all the extra vodka he carried for you. <laughs> Just for the record, my my official position now on uh, Bushcraft Global is I am, I have been promoted. I am now the assistant to the junior sub guide. Whoa. Second class. <laughs> uh, I am hoping one or two strategic deaths, maybe a slight mishap. And in the next year or two, I could be the junior sub guide. Hey, anything can happen in the jungle. Accidents are bound to happen, really. They are. Yeah. You'd be amazed at the places a scorpion can wind up. <laughs> Side note, fun thing that I learned as a rule of thumb, um, the smaller the pinchers on a scorpion, the more unpleasant the sting will be. Have you been stung by a scorpion? Um, I have not. But um, I may have been trying to take some pictures with a, a scorpion and didn't really pay attention when a couple of the locals are like, wow, that one's got really small pinchers. Yeah, I think I'm going to I mean, not line it up to get stung by one, but I'm going I'm to try to avoid it as best I can for as long as I can. Yeah, I, I'd recommend it. Yeah. So... Officially for the books, uh, would you go back again? Hundred percent. I've got to go back. Um, it was fun. Did you learn stuff? I uh, I'm keep rem- I keep remembering things I learned that I forgot because you're learning the entire time. Just watching them and how they live in the jungle is a one hundred percent learning experience. Uh, Metavine ceremony. What are your oh, thoughts? Um, like Joe says, everything is optional. No one's going to force you to do anything. Um, 
but I'm very happy I participated in everything I participated in, and I have full intention of doing everything again. Yeah, uh, side note, uh, Curtis got to, got to be known among the uh, the guides as um, everything we did, the first thing Curtis asked is, will this show up on a drug test? Oh, no, I can't do it then. Yep. <laughs> um, the the Medivine are uh, woodland spirits. Uh, the Matisse, for as much as they are indifferent to pain, they don't do a lot of corporate punishment. But if people in the village are being lazy or children are being or misbehaving, uh, that will draw the attention of the Medivine, which are woodland spirits that will come into the village with a double handful of what can best be described as canes. Um, uh, you know what? Uh, there's an Instagram video that I think I can get uh, Kyle to, to put in the show notes to give y'all an example. But um, uh, the, the Medivine will go around and punish the lazy and the, the poorly behaved children. And uh, I only thought spankings were bad. Yeah, no, it was um, it was biblical. Yeah, that is a, a good term. It was a it was a real whipping. <laughs> we, uh, we we separated some skin. Yeah, and they the 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 Medivine this year were not playing around. Nope. Uh, that that was probably the most intense I've seen in a while. Something else you should put in the uh, the show notes is you should take a photo of that mask you brought home on the mask, correct? I did. I was I was really fortunate this year. Um, some combination of abusing privilege and a, a good relationship with uh, some of the uh, the Matisse um, a, a Medivine mask somehow appeared in in my luggage this year. Really unique piece. Um, yeah, throw up on the Instagram for sure. It's a it's a very cool piece. Um, uh, so anything that I should have asked that I didn't? Mm, I don't know. We we covered a lot of the usual questions. Um, hmm. Nothing comes to mind. Uh, if people want to find your font of knowledge on all things Becker, where sh- where can they find that? Oh, the Woodsman Pilot uh, Blogspot. Uh, I think it's, yeah, it's Blogspot, I think. I really should know that information. I don't. But if you just type in one word, the Woodsman Pilot uh, blog, it'll come up. Or uh, my Instagram will come up, same handle, and then there's a link from my Instagram to that. And, uh, and and if people want to get to notice young, get to know young Curtis and and see that young fresh face, uh, should they look you up on Instagram or are you a you're a, you're a private kind of guy? Um, I don't really post much on any form of social media, um, but I am more than happy to meet new friends on Instagram. You can uh, that's my handle is the Woodsman Pilot, um, and that would probably be the. Uh, the preferred outlet right there is Instagram. I'm not really on anything else. I, you know, it, welcome to the, the new world. Um, Technology Facebook is, is uh, Facebook has <laughs> hosed me. And I know that Instagram and Facebook are owned by the same company. And yep. 
I will probably phase off Instagram very soon too, but, uh, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm rapidly becoming a minimal social media guy myself. It's a, it's a peaceful life. But every once in a while, you know, yeah. you do just miss the rapid trolling of people on the internet. It, mostly I miss the cat videos. I'm not going to lie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All righty. And you can keep in touch with the podcast, knifeperspective.com. You can contact us on Facebook and Instagram. Be mainly me answering. Uh, and you can find the podcast anywhere you're listening to it. And you can keep in touch with Dan Eastland and Dogwood Custom Knives at dogwoodcustomknives.com, Dogwood Custom Knives on Instagram. And me, Kyle Daly of Cage Daily Knives at cagedailyknives.com and uh, all the social media at KH Daily Knives. So thank you, Curtis. And it's been been great hearing about you and Dan's experience. I'm glad you got to... Uh, Got to go on one. It's been an absolute honor. I I appreciate y'all having me on. Uh, Be sure to listen to your own episode. We, we, we got, we need the count. Well, you actually might get a new viewer. Maybe Courtney will listen to it. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. Plus one. Awesome. Man. I. Okay. Yeah. No, we're safe. She can listen to it. (laughs) All right. Cut cut here. We're done. (laughs) Say good night, Dan. Good night, Dan. Well, let's take it to the edge, cause that's what's expected in this discussion. This is the night prospective. Let's get to the point.